we've talked to people that have sold everything to go on a motorcycle trip, their homes, their possessions, the whole bit. One even said he sold his clothes. And when I heard that, I thought, wow, that tops them all. And it did until today. So ask yourself this, what could you possibly have to sell after all your possessions, your home, and even your clothes have been liquidated to finance your adventure? What's left? Well, stick around and you're going to find out the answer to that question on today's episode of Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Jim Martin. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Eighteen years ago, Tiffany Coates, with her best friend, Becky Lincoln, decided they were going to ride a motorcycle from the UK to India. And among the other difficulties that always goes along with planning a trip like this, they didn't have a bike, they didn't know how to ride one, and they didn't have a license. So after a crash course on learning how to ride a motorcycle, they set off on an adventure. Zoom ahead to the year 2015, and Tiffany Coates is now considered one of the foremost female adventure motorcycle riders in the world. She's covered over 200,000 miles on her motorcycle through places like Asia, Australia, Africa, the Americas, Timbuktu, Outer Mongolia, Madagascar, and even the Everest Base Camp. And she now works as a freelance motorcycle guide. She's a speaker and adventurer. I spoke with Tiffany from her home in Cornwall, England. My name's Tiffany Coates. I'm not really from anywhere. My dad was in the army, so I was born and brought up on a series of army bases all over the place. My first school, well, was Cantonese kindergarten because we were based in Malaysia. Um, Lived in a couple of other countries as well. So, although, yeah, I am English. Um, I live in Cornwall now, so... I guess Cornwall's home Um, but yeah a real mixed growing up um, in different places but really enjoyed it and I think that's what set me off to have itchy feet and continue traveling and for work well my I'm a freelance international motorcycle guide which takes me to all the corners of the world whether it's Asia Africa South America for some reason nobody asks me to do Europe but um Yeah, I usually race across Europe to get to the more interesting parts of the world. Uh, But my bread and butter work back here in the UK is youth work. I specialise in working with children from the most disadvantaged backgrounds who probably present with the most challenging behaviour. And I work with these children around building their resilience, enabling them to develop and grow into responsible adults, or at least that's the idea. Tiffany, tell us how you got started doing this whole motorcycle thing. Okay, so I've always been into traveling, did a lot of backpacking, went around the world, etc. And then one day I was talking to my best friend and I said, I fancy going to India next. And she said, oh, India. Yeah, I fancy going as well. Let's go together. And why don't we go overland? Because there's a lot of interesting countries 
between England and India. And then the next thought was, hey, why don't we go by motorbike? And it was like, yeah, yeah, let's go by motorbike. Brilliant idea. Um, reality is neither of us had motorbikes or licenses or even knew how to ride. And in fact, Becky had never even sat on a motorbike before. I used to go out with a guy who had a bike. So I'd been on the back a few times. And on the strength of that and me saying, oh, it's brilliant on a bike. We decided, yeah, we're going to go to India on a motorbike. So we went out, we did the training, five days intensive, Monday to Friday. Test is pretty tough in the UK, but we both passed. And we did our training and tests on 125, so quite small bikes. And then we looked around, and at the same time we were telling people, look, we've got motorbike licences, we're going to go to India on a bike. And we'd already decided, you know, we'll just take one bike between us, because that's cheaper. And it's simpler. You can't lose each other if you're on the same bike. Also, we've got the same amount of experience, so we can share the riding. There won't be one of us feeling frustrated because she wants to be riding while the other one's not very good on the front. So we started looking around and a mechanic friend helped us find a secondhand R80GS. Now, there weren't so many dual sport bikes in the market in those days, so we felt pretty lucky to get this one. There was obviously less choice. So... We bought it over the telephone, long story around that. So over the phone, we had to decide. And we went around the next morning with the cash to pick it up. And we were just looking at this huge motorbike. We only had experience of the 125s for five days. We'd never actually seen a GS bike. And we were just both saying, oh, that's pretty big. In fact, that's really big, that bike. But anyway, we've agreed we're going to buy it. So gave the guy the money and then promptly dropped the bike. So mechanic friend drove it back to his workshop while we followed in a car and then we practiced and practiced every evening after work we'd go down there and we'd practice on an empty car park until we could ride that motorbike and um, just two months later that was it we set off for India so not an awful lot of experience on motorbikes when we set off and I think that is reflected in our journal in the early days for example it says day three we've reached Germany we're camping wild in a field. And guess what? We only dropped the bike twice today. So we felt that was quite an achievement, only dropping the bike twice a day. Um, as most motorcyclists will know, you tend to drop the bike just when you're doing the slow stuff, the silly things like pulling up to traffic lights, put your foot down, a little bit of gravel under your foot, and oops, the foot slips and the bike starts going over. And these bikes weigh a quarter of a ton. And that's before you put the luggage on or even the pillion passenger. So they're quite a weight. And we were on tiptoe. And now I had my bike for five years before someone thought to tell me, you know, you can lower a motorbike. So in the early days, very much up on tiptoes. But we managed like you do. You learn the techniques for riding and controlling the bike. Uh, riding improved. Well, it had to. We were doing it every day. And we made our way across Europe and across Asia and reached India all in one piece, amazed that we had. You made a slight reference there to little experience of riding when, before you left on the trip. This is no experience that you're starting out with. <laughs> Bloody hell, we had two months experience. That's shared as well, obviously. Like some people would have a motorbike to themselves for two months. But Becky and I were both working at least two jobs each. So we're working more than full time and we've only got the one bike between us. So yeah, that is less than two months experience. But um, well, we're just like, well, we can ride it now. So why not give it a go? 
I mean, what are we waiting for? What, for someone to say, oh, okay, you two passed the competence test. So, yeah, we're both the sort of people to just jump in and give things a go than to sit back and wait for a suitable time. Did it occur to you back then what a big deal it was? Or did you just not think about it? You just figured you can ride it and you're ready to go? Um, I think it's a big deal to other people. You know, for some people, it's a big deal to go to Paris for a weekend. It depends where your comfort zone is. And I don't know, I've been told, someone once said to me, you know what, Tiffany, I think you just don't have a comfort zone. Now, I do seem to be pretty comfortable most places. Um, So just giving things a whirl and you've just got to take each experience as it presents itself. You can't worry about things too much. So you just, yeah, it's a naive optimism, really. We're going to give this trip a go. Um, We're going to expect, like I have always done with my backpacking, and I've done a lot of solo trekking as well. Um, I'm just going to try this. I'm going to assume that most people I meet are nice. But at the same time, I rely on good gut instincts about people that I'm thinking, yep, this is a good person I can trust or actually... I don't trust this person. I shouldn't go down this road. To depart on this trip, you did what everyone does when they go on a trip. You worked hard. You said you were working two jobs there. You saved your money. And we hear a lot on this show of people selling off all their personal possessions. I mean, we even had somebody who said they'd sold their clothes to finance their trip. But you went one step further. Yeah, that's right. So sold quite a lot of stuff, worked two jobs, saved and saved, and then um, sold my hair to a wig maker. Got enough money to buy some tire levers and some other tools, and but literally cut the hair off the night before we went because they pay by the weight for it. So the longer it was, the more money I got. And I have to say, this was in the days before giving long hair or donating long hair for charities. So if I'd have known there was a better cause, I would have donated my hair to those. But certainly when we set off, those weren't around. So I set off with a completely shaved head. I can't imagine doing it myself. For a woman especially, I would think it's even it's even more difficult because women tend to be more attached to their hair, I think. I think for a woman, quite often their identity can be around their appearance and their hair and I can remember being horrified reading Little Women when I was a girl oh, I don't know 10 years old and one of the characters in Little Women cut off her hair and sold it and I can remember thinking oh my gosh fancy doing that oh I could never do that and yet quite a few years later I found myself doing it without a second thought I was quite curious to see what my scalp looked like and I knew it'd be more practical to travel with short hair Also, my hair grows quite quickly. So I thought, well, I'll cut it off. By the time I get anywhere important, it might, you know, it should have grown again. And let's have a look at this scalp of mine and let's see how many scars there are there underneath the hair. (laughs) So this trip, you spent five months, I think it was, going to India. Just give us an overview of what that was like. It was the most incredible roller coaster of emotions from... The first few nights when we're camping wild, feeling really quite scared, worried about our safety, thinking about the motorbike, is it going to get stolen in the night? And after a while, sort of realizing, you know, you can't sustain being scared at night every night. So easing into it, getting relaxed with um, just sleeping wherever we found ourselves at the end of the day, we'd just stick the tent up. 
and feeling increasingly confident with the motorbike you know obviously aware we weren't the most experienced riders in the world but also aware that each day we were riding it was becoming more automatic and we weren't dropping the bike as much we were getting better at the packing and it's that thrill of the freedom and the independence that travel by motorbike gives you that you're out on the open road and you can think oh i'll just stop here for the night or or i'm going to follow this footpath because i can i'm only on two wheels and i'll avoid this town or i'll go here and there Um, we had some low points with a couple of mechanical breakdowns and we had some confrontations with people very few, I have to say, you know, and all that before we even left Europe. But, um, oh, it was just the most incredible, enthralling experience. And we just couldn't believe how much fun it was. This is back in 1997-98, so before the internet became popular and uh, it was before it became the place to research trips. How did you get your information for all the areas you're going through? That was the tricky bit. Now I just take it for granted when I think, oh, okay, right, I want to make a trip. I'm going to go to Outer Mongolia or I want to go to Timbuktu. First port of call is the internet. Let's have a look at routes. Let's have a look at countries. What are the visa requirements? But back then it was more a case of having, well, books, basically. Books, trying to find people. But then that wasn't possible because of the internet not being around. It's amazing how dependent on it we've become Um, so actually we didn't meet anyone who had done a long distance motorbike trip met a couple of people who'd done trips into Europe so it was interesting to talk to them and in fact one guy we spoke to in a motorbike shop now this was perhaps not the most optimistic of starts for us we'd gone to buy a cargo net somebody had suggested oh a cargo net would be useful so we said okay so we went to this shop and we said to the guy behind the counter oh we need a cargo net and he asked what it was for and what bike so we said oh we've just bought an r80gs we're just about to set off for india he got a few more of the details out of us and then he looked at us and he was the typical biker big belly big beard bit of an attitude maybe and he hitched up his jeans and he said i've been planning a trip like that for 10 years i've been modifying my bike for the last three years what makes you think you can do it And Becky and I just looked at each other and said, "Mm, because we want to. Um, Yeah, it was, so it really made us think, is there some, you know, is there something really dangerous or really, really difficult about this that we're overlooking that we don't know about? Um, But we couldn't figure out what it was and we were going anyway. And actually, I've realized since then that some people are always in that state of, I'm getting ready for the big bike trip. And you know what? They're happy with that. That's the way they enjoy their lives. They like to dream about where they might go. But some of the times they won't actually go there, but they're still happy with their dreams. For us, it was a case of, got a dream, let's go see it to the reality. So it was out of the frying pan into the fire with the bike riding and minimal maintenance knowledge. But we had a very, very successful trip. I think that's interesting. You know, some people do that. Some people think they have to plan so far in advance and they've got to do all the preparation. And for them, like you say, that's right. It's a very good point. But I like to hear stories like this to show people that you don't have to. 
It doesn't have to be the way. It's not cut and dried that uh, all trips begin this way with these long preparations and, and a lot of paranoia. There's a lot of people out there who just get up and go, like yourself. Yeah, there are a lot of people who do just get up and go. I, there's also a lot of people who look at me with complete disbelief or they think I'm not actually telling the truth. And I'm like, well, yeah, but to me it was no big deal. Um, you get an idea to do something and you want to follow that through. How was your reception when you come across people, two women traveling by themselves, riding a motorcycle and with these grand plans? I mean, once you got on your journey, what was the reception like? Sometimes what we'd say is, oh, we're just heading east just to keep things simple. And then if we said we were heading to India, well, that was beyond a lot of people's reckoning. They were just like, my God, where the hell is that? Usually they would just assume one of us at least was a male and certainly the rider they would assume the rider is a male and when you're wearing motorbike gear with the body armor in it and you've got the helmet on top um you can look like a bloke you've got the big shoulders and the bigger build and then when we take the helmets off then there's sort of this oh they take a second look um me with my bald head and gradually as my hair was growing stubbly head um, they still weren't always too sure if I was male or female. And I'd find myself having to talk in a higher pitched voice just to say, yes, I am a woman. <laughs> but I can always remember at one point in Pakistan, pulling up to a petrol station, taking off our helmets. It was hot. And the petrol pump attendant just looking at us both, looking from one to the other and saying, ladies, gents, gents, ladies. <laughs> we said we're both ladies. And he's like, oh, OK. Um, and accepting of it. I think it's been a real icebreaker for us that we were both female on the bike. And also it means people, it's less confrontational. People are a bit more ready to be accepting um, if you're female, perhaps, than if you're male. Yes, I can, I can imagine the, the guy standing there looking, thinking, this guy's rather attractive. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, with the, the dusty street face, and the, uh, the pouring with sweat in parts of Pakistan, I'm not sure that would run through his mind. <laughs> what was India like? You, you got there, you didn't know what to expect, not fully without being there and certainly not riding a motorcycle through. What did it strike you as when you got there? Well, I think if we'd flown into India, it would have been a huge culture shock. But because we'd ridden there overland, we didn't have the issues that some motorcycle travellers have. Um, as you're heading east across Europe and then Turkey, Iran, Pakistan, gradually the road conditions are getting worse. And also you're meeting such a range of different people. And so the attitudes of the people and the behavior, that can vary quite wildly. And you, so by the time you get to India where there's some pretty crazy people, some very, very poorly maintained roads, and then crazy drivers it's like oh it's all come together into this big melting pot of full-on motorbike experience in this crazy country that it didn't seem as shocking as it could have been but um gosh um the congestion the way the cows are just wandering across the carriageway um, and the dirt as well um some of the pollution in going into delhi where our faces were just black with pollution from the trucks and buses that we'd overtaken to get along the road. It's, um, it's definitely a big culture shock, but it was also very, very enthralling. There was so much to see. It's very energizing. And the 
the curiosity from everybody. And what is really great is the fact that English is so widely spoken. So even the person selling matches by the side of the road could hold a conversation with us and satisfy their curiosity. And believe me, there's a lot of curiosity about foreigners when you get to India. It's a great place to travel. You make an excellent point there about getting in there gradually, because if you do fly somewhere, you arrive and, and it is just a big bang, you're you're there. But what you take into consideration for traveling slower, especially by motorcycle, is that uh, natural acclimatization that you get as you head into India and then get closer to the, the large centers. So it's an interesting point to consider, I mean, certainly for anyone who hasn't done a trip like that before, to think about the fact that you're not just jumping two feet into the the boiling pot, you're sort of getting up gradually. Yeah, that's right. Setting off from Europe where there are road rules and people do more or less follow them. There's speed limits that are observed. The roads are relatively well maintained and there's road markings as well. Something as simple as that can make such a difference. And then as those deteriorate and you go further east, um, you adjust your riding to take that into account. You're anticipating that something bad could be around every corner, whether it's a herd of goats crossing the road or two trucks just stationary in the middle of the road and you've just got to pull up sharp. I've certainly had all of those experiences. So you learn sometimes the hard way, but you expose yourself to these different experiences and your riding adjusts to take into account all these different um, things that can happen. When you got to India, that was your destination. What was your plan to do there? Were you going to turn around and head back home? Do you know what? We hadn't really thought through what was going to happen then. So I think in common with most impulsive people, you're not really thinking about your exit plan. You're just thinking about your grand entrance and your start, just heading off into the unknown. So, yeah, I'll be frank with you. We hadn't thought beyond, we're going to ride a motorbike to India. So we arrived in India and we travelled around for a few months, had a fantastic time there. And then we thought, well, we've still got some money left in the bank. And we're this far around the world. Wonder if we could reach Australia. So we just kept going from India. We, well, we went round to the east coast of India and Burma was closed in those days, or Myanmar as it's called now. Just this year, it's finally opened up to overland travellers. But it was closed then, so we had to ship the bike. So we shipped Thelma, our BMW, across the Andaman Sea into Thailand. That's the next country after Burma. And we rode through Thailand, Malaysia and Singapore. And then we shipped from Singapore down into Perth in Western Australia. We flew on down. They wouldn't let us go on the boat. We were desperate too, but they said it's not allowed. We flew down into Perth, collected the bike from the docks, and then rode across Australia to Sydney, where we had friends living, and we could stay with them while we sorted out what our next step would be, which wasn't going to be a very big step because we'd run out of money by that point. When you're looking at shipping the bikes, you said you hadn't really met anyone along the road that had uh, been doing world traveling, and there certainly is no internet to look at. How did you figure out how to ship them? When you're on the road traveling, you develop a bit of a sixth sense for other foreigners, especially other foreigners with vehicles. And so it was a question of keeping our eyes open. Um, We did meet some others once we were on the road. We didn't meet any before we set off. I think our first overland travelers we met 
were two motorcyclists in a town called Doggy Biscuit in eastern Turkey. Its real name is Doyubayazit, but when it's written down, it looks like the word Doggy Biscuit. <laughs> so they were the first ones we'd met. And then, interestingly enough, it was one of those guys that we bumped into in Chennai, in eastern India, who was also in the process of shipping his bike. So we'd bumped into them in a couple of other places along the way, but even so, it was just such a surprise. Um, and he'd got there a few days ahead of us, and he'd done some scouting around, um, and we joined him with that, and just identifying who shipping agents are, and trying to work out which ones were giving a fair price and possibly telling the truth about the fact that they had ships and these ships would run to a certain schedule and that our motorbikes would arrive where they're supposed to. It's a big degree of trust is needed at this point, but we didn't have much choice. So we went and found a shipping agent, told him where we wanted to go. He said, yes, we agreed a price and um, we handed our motorbike over to them. When you get to Australia, you have your bike, but you're out of money. So what does a traveler do at that point? You get the first job you can. So I had two jobs out there. I was working as a chef. Luckily, I've got a catering background. So it's working as a chef and as a cleaner. And Becky got some office work and was also waitressing. And we just worked hard. At first, we were sleeping on a friend's couch, well, two couches, and then we could save up money that we could rent rooms in the house, still living very frugally and just saving every single penny so that we could actually get home again. In later years, I realised actually probably most travellers budget for all of this and they know exactly how much it's going to cost them to ship home. But we hadn't even reached that stage. You know, I'm not one for planning, I have to say. I'm just more give things a go and see how, how it pans out. Well, it seems to work for you anyway. Well, it does. I've been really successful with it. Um, but I know it doesn't suit everybody, but um, yeah, it's the way I live my life. Now, you were saving your money with Becky to leave on an adventure across Australia. Did Becky go with you the entire way? Well, this is where things came a bit unstuck. You can picture the scene. We're both working in Sydney. We're saving up money. After a while, we've got enough money saved that we worked out, okay, we can afford to go home. And um, it suddenly struck us, oh, it would feel like cheating to ship the bike home. We were aware that's what most people do. We thought, no, that would be cheating, wouldn't it? And when you're in Australia and you look at a map of the world, there's Australia in the bottom right corner. There's the UK sort of just left of centre up near the top. And below that is Africa. And we looked at the map and we said, oh, well, Africa's on the way home. Yeah, let's go home through Africa. So that then became the next plan. So literally, we planned each stage as we reached it. Um, and so we looked into shipping the Thelma across to Cape Town. And at this point, Becky met the man of her dreams. And she decided she wanted to settle down in Australia with him. And actually, she wouldn't be coming to Africa with me. Now, it's a difficult decision for her to make, and obviously it's quite gutting for me. Suddenly I've lost my travel partner, and I had a good think about it. I mean, I, there was no way I wasn't travelling, and I worked out the technique for picking up Thelma on my own when I dropped her. So I thought, well, you know what, I could actually cross Africa on my own, but hey, it's so much fun when there's someone else. 
So then I, and by this point, emails had just started coming out. So I sent some emails home, phoned up some people and just basically said, anybody want to come and join me to ride home across Africa? And I was very lucky. My friend Maggie from Galway in Ireland, she was looking for a change of direction with career and her life. She had some money saved up. And more importantly, she just passed her motorbike test. She had no big bike experience, but I said, that is no barrier. So she booked a flight. I said, get yourself out to Cape Town. I'll be there with Thelma. I'll have Becky's jacket and helmet. You don't even need to turn up with anything except a few clothes. I'll teach you how to ride Thelma and we'll ride home across Africa. And that's what we did. We haven't introduced Thelma yet. Tell us about Thelma and how the name came about. So this goes back to the early days when we'd just passed our tests and a mechanic friend of ours helped track down a second-hand BMW R80GS. Black and yellow, also known as a Bumblebee. 1992 model with 5,000 miles on her. She was pristine. She came equipped with the BMW panniers, that's the plastic hard cases, and perfect bike for the job something that's sturdy enough to carry two people and all their gear, the camping stuff, across all the different terrains we would encounter. Where did the name come from? We had decided it's definitely an all-female expedition, so the bike needed a female name. And we didn't want anything racy, something a bit old lady-ish. Briefly considered the name Ethel and then decided on Thelma. Now, in our books, that's an old lady's name and that suited the bike. And also it ties in with Thelma and Louise, a well-known female road movie. Okay, it doesn't end too well, but ignore the ending. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's two women being resourceful on the road. So the bike was called Thelma. Africa is a huge and, and diverse continent. Talk about what that was like. Africa is something else entirely when you're traveling. Now, I'd managed to persuade Maggie to come out and join me. I said, oh, I've crossed Europe, Asia, Australia. We'll cross Africa. It will be a piece of piss. Now, that's a bit of a British saying, just meaning it's going to be easy. And Maggie believed me. Halfway through our first desert, I turned to her and said, you know what, Maggie? Africa actually is a lot tougher than anywhere else I've been. Halfway through our first river crossing, I'm giving more apologies, saying, I am so sorry, Maggie. I didn't realise it'd be this hard. To this day, Africa still stands as the toughest continent to cross. Deserts, rivers, um, sometimes semi-hostile territory. It's a large continent with very little infrastructure, but the most friendly people you could imagine, the most welcoming people, and with such a joie de vivre, for life and everything, so welcoming of us and so accepting of us as well. It was a phenomenal experience, um, one that we hark back to a lot. And it certainly increased my riding skills a lot. And as for Maggie, well, she'd never ridden a big bike before. And the next thing she knows, she's riding through a river that's at least two feet deep. So it was a real baptism of fire for her. You said she believed me. Did you have an inkling that Africa was going to be more difficult than what you've done? Oh, gosh, no, no. Like I said, whole journey's been based on naive optimism. And I just thought, well, I seem to have got this cracked now. I've crossed three continents. There's just one more to go. Um, 
this won't be a problem and also shorter than Asia so shorter distance to cover do you think that when you're doing something like that, that ignorance is somehow an asset? Because if you knew all the gory details about what could go wrong or what may have went wrong for someone else, would you have still tackled it the same way? And and does ignorance allow us to go ahead and be adventurous without having uh, maybe undue fear? I think ignorance has got a lot to answer for as far as my travel career goes. Um, (laughs) As I said before, I'm not one for doing a lot of research. Um, I'll do all the basics, but I won't sit and plan things and replan them. So, yes, I didn't know much about motorbikes and fairly minimal amounts about maintenance had been taught how to do all the basic maintenance on the bike. But... um, I do think ignorance also helped me. Um, It was things like people look at photos where I'm crossing Ethiopia and it's the wet season, so it's knee deep in mud and I'm riding the motorbike through the mud and people looking closely sort of say, what kind of tires have you got on there? And I said, those are just any old tires, some sort of hybrid tire. I'd managed to track down one in Kenya. It's the only tire in the whole country that would fit the bike. So you can't start getting picky saying, hey, I want this brand or that type of tire. You just take what you can get. And I had, I'd never even heard of knobby tires, as we call them in the UK. I think over there you call them knobby. So I didn't even know what a knobby tire was. And I definitely didn't have any knobby tires on my bike when I crossed the deserts or the rivers. And as for that mud in Ethiopia, you know, going through in ignorance about what could happen and what can go wrong and not realising actually I could have tyres that would help me a lot better. I just thought, right, we just need to get through here, use the throttle and just zoom on through the mud. You must have had to work incredibly hard with um, with tyres that were completely inadequate, really, for that sort of adventure. But it probably improved your skills. <laughs> yes, it probably did improve my skills. But And as for working hard, well, yeah, working quite hard anyway. Extreme temperatures, lack of water, complete lack of shade, and wrestling this quarter-ton motorbike across the sand. And even the scrubland could be really tricky at times. Yeah, you work hard and you just get on and do it and you don't realise, you know what, there's some things could make life easier because you don't know any better. So then you're not frustrated. You know, you're just coping with how it happens and how it unrolls. Yeah, that's a very good point. If you don't know any better, then you're not going to be worried about what you're having to deal with. That is just the status quo. Yeah, yeah. So that's the whole thing. Ignorance can work out because you're just like, well, to motorbike, it works. It's got two wheels. So therefore, it will run through these different conditions. Yeah, I think sometimes that, especially nowadays with so much being available to us on the internet with information, you know, you can you can find endless information on anything. I think sometimes some of us fall into that, overanalyzing something and looking at, uh, you know, just a little too deeply. And maybe that affects your decisions before you go in a negative way. There are some people who never feel ready to go because they, like you say, they're perhaps overanalyzing. And they're looking at the latest tires or the latest GPS and the latest motorbikes as well. So they're never, ever going to be ahead of the trends. They're trying to keep up with the trends and, oh, this is an improved version and that's an improved version. So it can slow down some people as far as actually setting off. 
Well, a, a fact in point is that back when you first started riding, you got that old R80 GS. What bike are you riding today? I'm still riding that old, as you call it, R80 <laughs> GS, and she's got 210,000 miles on her now. And as I said, she had 5,000 miles on her when I first rode her. Nearly all those miles have been travel miles, basically. She's the only vehicle I've ever owned. You see, I love this because it really flies in the face of a lot of thought process, whereas you have to get the latest, greatest gear. And I, I think stories like this really show people that, okay, so you didn't know when you started out, but you certainly know now. I mean, you know, you're one of the, the most experienced travelers on the planet, and you're still riding that bike. That is not an issue for you. Well, that's right. Like I said before, it's a bike with two wheels and it works. So modifications, none needed because it still works okay. After five years, I found out about getting the bike lowered. So she's lowered. So I'm not on such tiptoes to reach the ground. And yeah, she still runs so very well. So can't. I've been saying that um, I can't see myself ever getting rid of Thelma. And when I get too old or my legs get too wobbly to hold her up well then I get a sidecar and then there's no worries about holding Thelma up because she just stays upright herself. You were camping um, while you were going through Africa that must have been incredible I mean the the sights to see the places you could camp the wildlife. (laughs) Okay so the wildlife hyenas trying to take the boots away from our tent at night so we're having to bring our boots properly inside the tent, not just leave them in the porch. Shaking boots out for scorpions and spiders. And then in Kenya, in northern Kenya, uh, we'd been camping rough. And the next day we were riding along and one of the bushmen who was guarding his herd of cattle came running out onto the track. And this is the main road. In fact, it's the only road up that side of Africa to get up to the north. And to the rest of us, it would be an off-road trail, really. So lots of gravel, um, virtually no infrastructure or whatever. And this guy came running out asking for water. And we could speak a smattering of Swahili. We can get by in that. So we realized, yes, it's water he wants. Gave him as much of our water as we could spare. He was very grateful. And he was carrying a spear. And so we asked him, you know, why do you carry the spear? Um, it's obviously not for tourists. This is a very remote part of Kenya. And um, he said, no, it's because of the Simba. And Simba means lion in Swahili. And we said, lions, Simba, around here. And he's like, yeah, sure. You know, that's why I have to guard my cattle, even during the day. Uh, at that point, we thought, perhaps we should be rethinking a bit more carefully about where we're camping when we're camping wild. So then after that, what we did was we'd go through villages and we'd ask if there's lions around. And if the answer was yes, then we would ask to camp in the village compound for safety. Um, But if people assured us that there were no lions, then we'd continue doing what we'd always done, which is my particular point of view on this is if no one knows you're there, then you're safe. So either no one knows or everyone knows at the other extreme so if you're in a village and everyone knows you're there then you're safe as well because everyone will be keeping an eye on you but um, I prefer the ones in the remote locations such as the white desert in the Sahara it's on the edge of Libya and Egypt most incredible place and camped out by these 
amazing rock formations that have been shaped by the sand blasted with the wind. And it's these experiences, got the motorbike set up, got the tent set up. If we've got some wood, we'll have a little fire, but otherwise we're boiling the kettle on our camp stove, making a cup of tea and just enjoying the most beautiful sky at night in the desert with all the stars stretching out to the horizon. When you said you were heading to Africa to head home, was the plan to leave Africa and go back to the UK? Yes, because it's it's quite straightforward, really. When you look at a map and you're starting in Cape Town, just ride up through Africa, get into the Middle East, and then home from there. Although I have to say, by the time we reached the Middle East, it was winter. And I've got previous experience of traveling in Turkey when it's cold. So I said, we're not going to be able to make it through Turkey itself. So we reached Egypt, crossed the Sinai Desert into Israel, and got a ferry from Israel to Greece, and then rode home across Europe from there, um, crossed the Alps in a blizzard, which felt quite surreal because just two weeks earlier, we'd been in the desert and in the baking heat, and then there we were in the Alps, coping with blizzards, wiping the snow off the visor where it was building up as I rode along. You arrive back in the UK, and now you're transformed. You're a world traveler. I mean, you've got a lot of experience under your belt. You weren't a very fearful person to begin with, but you certainly have gained a lot of uh, confidence by doing this trip. What happens next? What happens next is more naive confidence. So I arrived back in the UK, and my mum, who's a very laid-back woman, she's managed to bring up five independently-minded children. And... She greeted me with the words, oh, Tiffany, so you're back. You went off on that motorbike. Now, bear in mind that nobody in my family rides motorbikes. They're not scared or worried by them. It's just an unusual thing for anyone to do. So she said, you went off on that motorbike, said you were going to India and you'd be about eight or nine months. You've been gone for two and a half years. Where on earth have you been? Now... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was. Did you not keep in touch with her? <laughs> did I you not... did. I did. You know, that's her exaggerating. She used to get postcards and letters, the very occasional phone call, and then emails developed because I was away for two and a half years. By the time we got back, there were emails. Before I went, there was not really any internet. We didn't have any emails. Um, so I gained an email address. My parents didn't have one, but a friend did. So she would give them, pass on all the messages that I was able to send via email. Um, so, yeah, but, I mean, that's my mum's my mum's way of understating something. So she's not worried. She said, there's no point in being worried about me when I'm away. Um, she said, otherwise, she'd just be grey overnight with the, oh, could this be happening? Could that be happening? I think I get that naive optimism from her. Um, she trusts me that I'm going to make the right choices and decisions while I'm away. And she respects my judgment as well. Might not always agree, but she respects it. So, yeah, that was, yeah, that had turned into two and a half years away on the bike. And that was me well and truly hooked on the motorbike travel. So that's when I looked around some more and harking back to my backpacking days, I thought, oh, Chile, I never got to Chile in South America. I'd like to go there. And somewhere else I'd like to see is Alaska. And so there, was born the idea for the next trip was, well, I want to go to both those places. I bet I could ride my motorbike from one to the other. And so that's what I did. My next trip involved riding from Alaska down to Chile, 
continuing to Tierra del Fuego at the southern tip of South America. And then I had been thinking, oh, I'll ship out of Buenos Aires. That's what most travelers to South America do. But I'd met a couple of Brazilian bikers and they'd said, oh, wow, you're traveling with a motorcycle. You've got to go to Brazil. You'll love it. So I'm here in South America and why not? So from Tierra del Fuego, headed north, I went up the Atlantic coastline, reached Brazil, and I spent nearly three months just going around the countryside and the coastline of Brazil. It's a huge country. Ended up going up the Amazon on a passenger boat, had to ride up the gangplank to get my bike onto the boat, and then rode north through the jungle from the Amazon, ended up in Venezuela, and shipped home from Caracas. So that one turned into 14 months on the road and virtually the whole thing done solo as I was flying home from South America. And I was thinking, gosh, I've now crossed every continent. Um, I'm sure there's other places in the world. And this memory came back to me of when I was 12 years old, looking in an atlas of the world and finding Timbuktu. And I can always remember thinking, wow, Timbuktu not just a place name made up by grown-ups to mean a far-off area. And I can always remember sort of saying to myself there and then, I'm going to go to Timbuktu one day. I want to go see the camels and the palm trees. I'm going to go there. So literally, as I flew home from South America, and I've got to say trips don't always end like this, I was already getting excited about the fact that, yeah, I'm going to go to Timbuktu. Don't know if you can get there by motorbike, but I'm going to give it a try. And I did. How do you finance yourself as you're doing all of this? Um, <laughs> I do travel very frugally. But having said that, I always have a beer when I want a beer. Have a glass of wine when I want a glass of wine. Um, I enjoy camping immensely. The outdoor life is something that is, oh, it's the most amazing experience to be outside under the stars just me and my tent and my tent becomes home um, whether I'm doing a one-year trip away on the road or I'm just away for the weekend I get my tent set up and it's like oh yes this is home so yeah I do tend to travel cheaply um, and never stay in posh hotels but then I can't really see the point of posh hotels what do you need a tv for and all the other fancy things when I could be camped out beside a river swimming in the river enjoying all that, eating local food or cooking for myself. So I travel cheaply. And also when I'm at home, I live quite frugally. Travel by motorbike is my passion. And so that's what I prioritize in my life. That's what I save my money for. Um, I don't have many expensive things going on in my life, but the travel is what I will spend every penny on. We talked a while ago about um, traveling as a woman and having to deal with meeting people and them not expecting that there was a woman under that helmet. Were there times when being a woman has been a huge advantage for you on the motorcycle? <laughs> yes, I would say there are definitely times when it's an advantage to be female on the motorbike, not least the icebreaker and the easing of tension when I arrive in remote places and maybe the people there aren't used to outsiders turning up. Um, certainly outsiders who look nothing like them with white skin. I've had tribes people rubbing my arms to see if the white will wear off. 
But before that, when I have taken off my helmet, they've realised it's a woman. You can see people are being much less defensive and more accepting. Oh, right. So this is a woman. We don't need to get worried. This isn't someone who could potentially cause trouble for us. So there's been a lot more doors opened to me because I am female. And I really appreciate that. In some cultures, I'm regarded as an honorary male because... A, I'm traveling on my own, and B, I have my own vehicle, which is unheard of in a lot of countries for, as far as women are concerned. So I'm an honorary male, but I'm also perfectly free to wander into the female side of the household, hang out in the kitchen with the women, and play with the children. So I get the best of both worlds, is how I see it. In Peru, you had some incidents with police pulling you over. Oh, yes. Peruvian police well known for being corrupt so so-called speeding fines sometimes they haven't even got a speed gun but they'll pull you over and say you've been speeding now fair enough maybe i was going a bit fast at times but it's a straight clear road with no other traffic around but i was quite lucky in peru as soon as i pulled off the helmet they would say oh senorita and they'd be looking up the road looking for senor no no senor and so then instead of pushing for a fine they would just flirt for a short time before they let me go on my way and so yeah I'd take advantage of that when I can. Well didn't you think that was your sort of your obligation to say no no just give me the ticket anyway I mean you shouldn't be treating me different. (laughs) (laughs) Listen I take these advantages when I can because they make up for the times when I'm crossing borders in remote areas where the border crossing is manned by couple of guys with raggedy uniforms and the border office and maybe the customs post itself is just a tent and you go into this tent and they're taking down the details by hand in a large ledger writing it all out and that tent is also their bedroom so you're in an office slash bedroom and they're thinking well why on earth is this woman traveling on her own well you know what She's probably in need of a bit of help and attention here. Maybe we can give her the kind of attention she needs. So sort of, you know, brushing off those advances when I'm on my own in the middle of nowhere. That then makes up for when I can get the bribes um, ignored at other times. And that's going to be difficult to handle. Is there a method that you find works best for that? Yes. Well, what works for me is being very deliberately naive about it and not understanding what they're trying to infer when they're pointing at the bed, they're raising their eyebrows. And I'm just like, oh, yes, yes, that's very neatly made bed. Yes, I don't need to go any closer to it. And oh, I do need to get going. And my husband is expecting me in the very next town. So I need to be going. And so just not coming to a head-to-head confrontation about it, enabling them to save face, because for some people that's more important than anything else. So making my excuses, trying to be graceful about it, and then leave as soon as I can. You did the trip to Timbuktu, um, and then you went on to uh, Mongolia from there? (laughs) You make it sound like, well, I came out of Timbuktu, (laughs) headed north to right for Mongolia. So, yeah, so I went to Timbuktu and came home again. And Well, you know, the thing is, Tiffany, you've done so much traveling. It's very difficult to look at them all in a short period of time <laughs> because there's a lot here. Oh, oh, I know. Yes, 
there is a lot. Um, I've crossed every continent, some of them several times. I'm the first motorcyclist, male or female, to have crossed Asia on all three classic routes. So that's to arrive in Tokyo, Beijing, and Singapore. So oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So do you know what? I didn't even know that when I did it. It was something I found out retrospectively because I wasn't, I'm not one to go chasing records or anything. I go traveling for the fun of it and my enjoyment of the different places and to satisfy my curiosity. Like, what is Timbuktu really like? Or Tibet? What are the people like in Tibet? So I go to these places because I want to see them. And through doing all that, I do seem to have covered an awful lot of places along the way. What was Timbuktu like? It's very dusty. A couple of people had warned me in advance, people who have competed in the Paris-Dakar rally when it used to run in Africa. It sometimes would have some stages running through Timbuktu. So people I know who have taken part in it have said, you do realise it's just a rather dusty Saharan town in the middle of nowhere. And my response was always, I don't care. I've got to go there. It's a destination I have to see. And actually, it didn't disappoint I wasn't expecting streets paved with gold, which is just as well. The streets are just covered in sand like the rest of the Sahara. There's nomads' tents. It's, it's yeah, to my mind, it was a very magical place. It's got more NGOs than any other town I've been to. And it's a difficult place to get to, and that's what adds to its charm. What were the NGOs doing? They use it as their centre of operations for... Sahara. Sahara Desert's a huge area, as everyone knows. Um, the infrastructure is non-existent. And Timbuktu actually provides a very good base. It's on the banks of the river, so river transport is possible. Camel transport. And if you're lucky and you've got some good drivers, people can take off across the desert. So the NGOs are based there. They can buy beers. And if they're lucky, they can get cold beers there. They've got a reasonable level of accommodation. And so, yeah, it's a, it's also got some reasonable communications. So as far as talking with the outside world, um, then it's probably the best place to be in that bit of the Sahara. So, yeah, all these factors add together to make it a good base. When you were in Timbuktu, what year are we talking? Crikey. Um, Timbuktu, 2005? Yeah, 2005, I think. Well, unlike Tiffany, we have limitations, so we're going to leave Tiffany in Timbuktu. You're going to have to come back next week and listen to part two when Tiffany plans a trip from the seat of an airplane looking out the window. Before you go, I want to talk to you about a deal we have with Audible to get you a free audiobook. If you haven't listened to audiobooks yet, well, it's much like listening to a podcast. You're listening to someone read a story, and they have excellent readers for these books. I'm going to give you an address that you can go to, and you just sign up for the account. You put in your information, and you automatically get the free book. The first month is free, and the address is audibletrial.com forward slash ARR. And of course, the ARR stands for Adventure Rider Radio. When you sign up for this, 
It costs you nothing. They don't bill you until the end of the first month. So if you decide you don't want it, you cancel it, you keep your book, and we still get the credit for you going there and, and trying it out. But I think you're going to like it because Audible is really fantastic. The amount of books, the number, the sheer number of books they have in stock is unbelievable. Almost any sort of book you want, and most titles are in Audible. And the book I'm going to recommend this week is by Sam Manicom, who you know is an adventure motorcycle traveler. You've probably seen his books around and certainly heard him on this show before. The book is called Into Africa, and that's his first book of the the series that he has there of, of four books. Absolutely fantastic. And it's great to sit back and listen to this because you're actually listening to Sam's voice in this book. Sam reads it himself, um, which is not all that usual for audiobooks. So go there, sign up, get Sam's book for free. You don't have to pay for it. And if you decide you don't want to keep the, the program after that, then you just cancel it before the end of the month and you pay nothing. Audibletrial.com forward slash ARR. Drop by the website, get yourself a free book just for listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Now, we got you the free audiobook. You're going to go over there and you're going to sign up for that. How about doing a favor for Adventure Rider Radio? Drop by the website, give us a comment, drop off a donation, or go on over to iTunes. And if you don't know how to get there, the link is right on our website. Go to the main page, look on the right-hand side. There's a link there to iTunes. Click on that and give us a rating at iTunes. Let iTunes know what you think of the show. And make sure you drop back next week to hear part two of Tiffany Coates. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you by Canoe West Media, with special thanks to co-producer Elizabeth Martin. Hi, this is Ed March from C90Adventures.co.uk, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.